All right. So, of course, this is Palm Sunday, if you haven't put it together by now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, before we, uh, as we look at this text and before, as we start thinking about the events of Palm Sunday, in order to understand Palm Sunday, we need to understand some context. So at Resurrection Church, we're no stranger to context, and sometimes that means a bit of history. So if you're a history nerd, this is going to be really exciting. If you're not, bear with me just for a minute. On March 15th, 44 BC, a group of nobles assassinated Julius Caesar. And as a result, the Roman Republic plunged into a civil war. Various factions vied for control of the Republic, which in recent years has expanded from France to Egypt. Ultimately, these civil wars would be won by the heir of Julius Caesar, Octavius, who emerged victorious after a long period of fighting in which the forces of the nobles and the forces of the general Mark Antony were defeated. What followed after Octavius's victory was a period of stability that would last almost 200 years that is known as the Pax Romana. During that time, power was consolidated, trade flourished, uh, piracy was eliminated, roads and infrastructure was constructed at a pace never before seen in the world. Civil war ended. Octavius took on the name, a new name, one that we're more familiar with, Caesar Augustus. And along with that, the title Lord of All, King of Kings, Savior of the World, and Son of God. For the Romans, a new golden age had descended upon the world that promised something new and great from all previous history that had preceded it. This peace was maintained by the Roman legions. Any hint of rebellion was quashed by Romans' large, well-trained, and highly effective army. Leaders who dared challenge the authority of Rome met their end using Rome's cruel tool of painful humiliation crucifixion. Rome had given the world peace, it is true, but it had come at the cost of blood and the cross. Now, it's important to understand this context as we read the events of the triumphal uh, entry, because in the Roman province of Judea, most people were not on board with this picture of the Roman view of the world as a new golden age. In their mind, their god Yahweh actually ran the world. It was true that they were subservient to Rome presently, but there would be a time when this would change. They knew from their sacred scriptures that great powers rose and fell. The Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks had all tried to rule them before, and those empires were no more. Furthermore, the book of Daniel had said that uh, a series of kingdoms would rule over them and that one kingdom in particular would be more powerful than all the others preceding it, but that kingdom too would fall. And after that, God himself would return to Judea and establish a new peace on the world. Not the Pax Romana, but the Shalom Judea. So as we read our passage from Matthew, we are one week before Passover. And Passover, of course, was the time when the people of Judea remembered when God had freed them from slavery and the oppression of the Egyptian Pharaoh. Probably not too much of a stretch to guess who now seemed like they were on Team Pharaoh in the eyes of the people. Combine that with the fact that everyone was looking for the time when the final kingdom and Daniel would be taken out, 
and God placed in charge. And so you can imagine that the atmosphere at Jerusalem at the time of Passover was intense as all the people began to celebrate this great story of national liberation. Now, the Romans knew this as well. Passover was, uh, one of the things about Passover was it was a pilgrimage festival. So people from all over Israel came to Jerusalem. And here's here's something interesting. Historians believe that the population of Jerusalem could have increased by as much as four or five times during the Passover. That's amazing to think about. I remember I used to live in Alabama and there was one Saturday when the Alabama-Georgia game, the, or the Auburn-Georgia game, the Alabama-Tennessee game, and Talladega were all the same weekend. And they estimated the population of Alabama increased by like 5%. Talladega was briefly the largest city in Alabama for that weekend. But that was nothing compared to what happened to Jerusalem at Passover. So if we think about this, the week before Passover, it was important that the Romans make it a point to demonstrate to everyone who was, who was in charge. And so, in a show of force, the Roman governor, who you may have heard of, Pontius Pilate, marched into, into Jerusalem on a war horse in front of 6,000 soldiers. Because the Romans wanted everyone to know that the Pax Romana would be maintained and any hint of revolt or dissent would be swiftly met with sword and cross. Now, it's at this same time that Pilate and the Roman legions are displaying the might of Rome, backed by their threats of bloody reprisal, that Jesus is leading his small band of followers in Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, Here's the thing. This is not the first time someone has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. If you were to uh, go back in your Old Testament, uh, back to 1 Kings, you would read about how Solomon, King Solomon, the great king of uh, the Jews, rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. And of course, Solomon was the king of Israel at the height of its power, when its territory was at the greatest extent. And so Solomon represents Israel at the apex of its glory. The time of Solomon was the golden age of Israel. And it was that time that the people longed for and wanted to return to. So you see the contrast here. You have Rome and its golden age. And yet here we have a symbol of a return to Israel and its golden age. And you can imagine the excitement and anticipation that this uh, symbolic action of Jesus generated by recalling Solomon. This guy who kept telling us that the kingdom of heaven was at hand is now marching into Jerusalem, just like Solomon did in those golden days of yore. Now, the people thought, the Romans are in trouble, and we are going to finally be back on top. Our long days of humiliation under the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and now the Romans is over. And so, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the people respond with symbolic actions of their own. They cut palm branches. Crowds had actually done the same thing 150 years before in Jerusalem, when another Jewish leader named Judas Maccabeus retook Jerusalem from the Greek king Antiochus IV. 
Uh, if you are familiar with the uh, holiday of Hanukkah, that's what Hanukkah is about. Now, we're unsure why exactly the palm fronds were used as a, uh, a, a during this time when Judas Maccabeus came. The scholars think a couple of different things. Some think that the palms were linked to the, uh, the mobile shelters, the tents the Hebrews had built uh, and lived in after they fled Egypt. So if you, uh, there's a holiday called Sukkoth. Uh, that uh, is still celebrated in which tents are built and it was supposed to remind uh, the Jewish people about uh, what it was like after they had escaped from the, uh, the Egyptians. So uh, that's one explanation. Another is that they think it was actually a kind of a, 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 an insult. Uh, palm fronds were given as kind of like a trophy uh, in Greek culture at the time as a sign of victory. And so the Jews were adopting that, kind of saying, now we're the victorious ones. So we're not exactly sure of the origin, but here's what we do know. We do know that in the future, Maccabean rulers would adopt the palm leaf as their symbol. In fact, uh, we have several examples of coins that were minted by these leaders that featured palm branches on their reverse. Now, in addition to, uh, to these palm trees or these palm fronds, which were called uh, the victory of the Maccabees, uh, the people shouted, Hosanna. And Hosanna means save us. Incidentally, the name Jesus, uh, which means Yahweh saves, is derived from that same root word. And that cry comes from the psalm that we did the responsive reading from, Psalm 118. Uh, Psalm 118 is actually part of a group of psalms uh, that begins with Psalm 113. So Psalm 113 through 118, it was a specific group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms or Praise Psalms. And they were sung at Passover. So Hosanna was another celebration of the Exodus. But it also, in this case, was functioning as an anticipation of a new Exodus. So, you know, we think of the triumphal entry, and the reason I need to set up this context is because, like, when we think of Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, we think of the kids, we think of the the bright Easter clothes, um, we think of the people waving the palm branches, like this was some kind of, like, uh, almost sweet springtime parade. But, really, what is happening here is anything but that. This was crazy provocative, what was going on. If you think about it, occurring at the same time that Pilate was leading the legions into Jerusalem, this was no parade. This was the first century version of people chanting, let's go Brandon to Pilate, and also giving the Romans the finger at the same time. This was crazy. So what I'm trying to set up here is this dynamic. We have the Romans and their armies symbolically demonstrating their power. But we also had the people of Jerusalem symbolically beginning a rebellion by recalling the Exodus and the Maccabean Revolt. They're two big stories of national liberation. However, there's another question that we need to ask. We need to ask, what message did Jesus mean to communicate? So we've heard from the Romans, we've heard from the people of Jerusalem, but what was Jesus trying to say? So, let's think about a few things here in the way that Matthew tells this story. 
the passage in Matthew begins with Jesus in Bethphage. And specifically, it tells us that Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, which sounds like a really cool place, um, if you like olives. But uh, from the Mount of Olives, you would enter Jerusalem through the East Gate. And that's an important detail, particularly in regards to how Matthew tells the story of Jesus in his gospel. Okay, and this is the reason why, because way back in Exodus, the very presence of God, the spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, the Ruach, had taken residence in the Ark of the Covenant. And eventually, it was that Ark of the Covenant that would occupy this special space in Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies. The Book of Kings describes this presence of God inhabiting the temple using similar language to the imagery in that of the Exodus. Now, fast forward about 500 years after that to the Babylonian conquest and to the fall of Jerusalem. And you'll, uh, if you've ever uh, read Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel begins with this crazy picture of the heavenly throne room with wheels turning inside wheels and strange creatures. You know, and this always makes people wonder if Ezekiel was maybe on psychoactive drugs or, or my favorite theory, he was encountering ancient aliens. Um, but however, the point of Ezekiel's vision is that the presence of God is on the move. And as Ezekiel goes on, he details the journey of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that uh, was in Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant, and that was in Kings and Solomon's Temple. He details the journey of that Spirit, uh, in, particularly in chapter 10. And the Spirit of, uh, of God leaves the Holy of Holies of the Temple, travels out the east gate, goes to the Mount of Olives, and ascends into heaven. So now we have Jesus, who is, of course, the incarnate presence of God, filled with the Spirit, traveling the reverse route. Jesus begins the Mount, at the Mount of Olives. He enters through the east gate of Jerusalem, and he will go to the temple. And Matthew has already been setting us up for this. Uh, when Jesus begins his ministry right after the temptation, back in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us Jesus goes to Capernaum in the region of Galilee, uh, which was in the north of Israel. And Matthew quotes a passage from Isaiah that promises a time when the people of Galilee will see a new light and a new dawn will begin. And it's significant that the reason this light comes to Galilee is because Galilee was the first portion of the territory of Israel to be lost to foreign conquest. So what you have in Matthew is Matthew beginning with the presence of God returning to the first part of the land that was lost and then ending here with the presence of God returning to Jerusalem along the same route that it had left in Ezekiel. So that's one thing that Jesus is trying to get across here in the symbolism. In addition, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Jesus is doing two things here. First, Jesus is following the script that was predicted by the passage that Miles read to us today from Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, who I am sure you all remember from our series uh, a few years ago on the post-exilic prophets, uh, was active. Uh, he was a prophet that was active after the exiles had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the problem uh, during Zechariah's time was that the people had returned, 
but uh, everything was kind of underwhelming. Conditions were a little nicer than being uh, uh, imprisoned by the, held captive by the Babylonians, but they were still under the dominion of the Persians. Their temple was pathetic, uh, mostly because it was not filled with the presence of God like the first one, and they had no king. And Zechariah, in his work, is promising a reversal of these conditions. And he paints a picture of a future Davidic king, a future descendant of David, who will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, just like Solomon had done. So Jesus, by claiming descent from David and entering Jerusalem on top of a donkey, was symbolically establishing himself as the returning king of Israel that Zechariah had been talking about, that Zechariah had promised. This was, and this was kind of a one-upmanship on the Maccabees, right? The Maccabees had entered into Jerusalem in triumph before, but the Maccabees were actually not part of the royal family or the priestly family. In fact, we know that many people, many Jews, did not consider the Maccabees quite uh, uh, legit. In fact, it was uh, because of their lack of credentials and their corruption that led to the formation of uh, separatist groups back then, like the Essenes and the reforming group that we all know and love, the Pharisees. So my point here is that Jesus is, is uh, adopting these symbols, these symbols of Davidic kingship. But Jesus also has a real connection to the Davidic line, unlike the corrupt Maccabees. However, there is a very important piece of the symbolism that the people missed. So, so they know something big is happening here. They know there's something that's changing. They know it has something to do with the Davidic kingship. And you know, then we have this whole idea about like the presence of God returning, which is also one of the things they were looking for. And you know, Jesus has been going all along telling us that the, king, the kingdom of heaven is in hand. They're anticipating this, but there's an important piece of the symbolism that the people missed. And it's fundamental to what Jesus had been trying to communicate all along to his disciples, his followers, and to pretty much everybody else he could, his entire public ministry. Because as much as it was awesome that the presence of God is returning to the people, and that the Davidic king is returning to the throne, what is truly important is what this means for the world. And what it means is something new, something revolutionary, Something different, something earth-shattering, something world-changing that's going to reshape everything. You see, there was a reason that Solomon rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. You actually find that reason in the great work of ancient Hebrew ethics that is known as Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is nothing less than an alternative vision of society that enacts God's values into the world as best could be done in an ancient tribal society. And although it bared many similarities to the world of the ancient Near East, Deuteronomy nevertheless is very, very different because what it's doing is it's elevating values like community and neighborliness. One place we see these values being demonstrated is how Deuteronomy conceives kingship. In chapter 17, Deuteronomy specifically forbids the king from doing three things. Kings must not acquire horses, kings must not acquire many wives, and they must not acquire gold and silver. In other words, exactly the opposite of what every king in the ancient world was trying to do. 
by building up their military, their prestige, and their wealth by means of war, violence, exploitation, and oppression. Deuteronomy specifically calls that out. Instead, Deuteronomy commands the king to keep the words of the law and the statutes of Deuteronomy, which were designed to ensure justice mostly for those with the least amount of power. Solomon entering Jerusalem on a donkey at his coronation as king is signaling to the people that he is not a warrior, but he is instead a servant king. Horses were for chariots and for war. The donkey, though, is a beast of burden. Now, if you read the passage from Zechariah, if you listen to the passage that Miles read to us, you see Zechariah totally gets this idea. Verse 9 describes the king how? As humble and mounted on a donkey. He expands this idea further. What does the king do? The king cuts off war horses and chariot. So the king speaks peace to the nations. The king frees prisoners. The king restores what has been taken. He's a king of restoration. He's not a king of oppression and exploitation. He's not a taker. He's a giver. The people have totally missed, though, the point that Jesus is trying to get here. They watch Jesus before their leaders and before Pilate, and they realize Jesus isn't the revolutionary that they want him to be, that they thought he was. So when they are given the opportunity to free someone, they choose Barabbas. Uh, Our translations frequently call uh, Barabbas a thief, but that's not what that word means. Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He is the kind of person that the people want Jesus to be, but he is not that person. Servants and peacemakers do not interest these people. We often wonder that question. How can these people cheer so loudly for Jesus and are so on his side in Palm Sunday and then one week later abandon him and ask for Barabbas to be free? This is why. Because they realize Jesus isn't the ruler they want him to be. However, although Jesus isn't a a warrior, but rather a servant and a peacemaker, that's the point of Palm Sunday. What Jesus is doing through his actions is symbolically proclaiming nothing less than a different way of life. A way of life that will reject violence and the oppressions of the Romans, but also that will reject the violence of the people. The people think their problems will be solved if new people, nicer people, are in charge. But what they do not realize is that they will just perpetuate that cycle, providing another victory for violence and for power. Because, see, the thing about Palm Sunday is it's more than just rearranging the pieces and replacing the faces with the new ones. It is something new. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is declaring war on the powers of this world. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is undermining, exposing, and subverting the powers of the world. In a week, those powers are going to all unite together and use every tool at their disposal to bring an end to Jesus' challenge, using the only methods they know, the methods they believe, they firmly believe are necessary to upholding their world, power and violence. Power and violence that will find its ultimate expression in the cross. And Jesus will complete the revolution he began at Palm Sunday by exposing that power structure as a fraud. 
by showing that the emperor has no clothes because there is no greater power in the universe uh, than than violence. There is a greater power in the universe than, uh, than power and violence, and that is love. So for us as the church, Palm Sunday is about taking up this same counter vision of the world that Jesus is trying to prevent. It is about rejecting all temptations to merely rearrange the pieces and to substitute one vision of power for another. It is about showing that there is a better way, a way that rides on a donkey and declares peace, that rejects war horses and armies and instead serves, bears burdens, eats with sinners, takes up crosses. To remember that when the presence of the Lord comes back to the temple, it does so not in the form of a great warrior, not in the form of an opulent king, not in the form of a Caesar, but in the form of a homeless Jew. So when we look back, so we look back uh, beyond fact. We look beyond fact and circumstance. And our job is to give hope. The good news is that we are well equipped to provide this counter vision that Jesus has provided because we already have all the vocabulary we need to articulate, to symbolize and live out this counter vision. Let me just read some off for you. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. That's Isaiah. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's Ecclesiastes. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your your faithfulness. Lamentations. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Matthew. Love your enemies and do good to them that curse you. Here's Paul. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor pre- things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, Paul, so now faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. And Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That is the counter vision that we've been given. There are many more examples of this. The Bible's full of them, but all of them challenge these forces that hope to rob us and the rest of the world of our faith, our freedom, and our courage. These are all alternate visions of the world. They're new, they're strange, they're different. But if the church can take up this vision, if we can be new and strange, then we can continue to create the world that Jesus taught about, the world that Jesus lived up, and the world that Jesus died for, but also the world that we believe against hope will ultimately prevail. And that is the message of Paul.